how can we use our locational analysis, our information about our geography, those things that aren't part of precision ag, but yet are spatially related data sets for CBA's business model. And that's the part that we're missing. So that's a good call out. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading account payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us in the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ken Boyd. I'm a four-time author, including the book Cost Accounting for Dummies. I'm a business writer, a former CPA, and I'm the content manager at Stamply. And joining me today is Fran Swain, the CFO of Central Valley Ag Cooperative. Fran, thanks for being here today. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks a lot, Ken. Appreciate it. Just for starters, tell us a little bit about what you do and your background. So I've, I've been in accounting finance my entire career, focused in agribusiness from uh, way back in the 90s when we were running a, a smaller operation out of Northwest Iowa. A cash grain farm, 7,500 acres, grain elevator, crop input sales to farmers, things like that, all the way through to uh, corn ethanol for a number of years. Made ice cream up in Lamar's, Iowa at the Blue Bunny Ice Cream Factory, if you all heard of that. Sure. And then yeah. was in Minneapolis with a company called CHS Incorporated for just about six years. And they're one of the nation's largest regional co-ops. We have to define those carefully, but a good experience. That's great. That's great. What's the structure of your team? How many people involved in finance and accounting? And um, who do you report up to? Sure. So I've been at Central Valley Ag now for uh, going on just 10 months. And during that time, we've not had a lot of changes. The department was structured really very well. Probably 75 uh, total folks in our accounting and IT department. Structurally, uh, we do include IT up underneath finance. Probably 40 accountants or so and 20-ish, a little more maybe in information technology and then another 15 in the uh, if you want to call it the ancillary roles, uh, FP&A, internal audit, customer credit, member services, that sort of thing. And uh, we all report, or I report directly to the CEO. Just seeing about a co-op after not looking at one for a long time, how much technology plays a part now. Mm-hmm. It's such a big piece. What type of board structure do you have and what types of metrics or financials do you report to the board? Sure. So we are a, a farmer-owned co-op, right? And we can trace our roots back to probably 100 years ago, where the original co-op in this area was formed. And then over the years, almost every community had their own co-op, and they've merged together. And, and now, so we're spanning an area from northwest Iowa down into Kansas, up into the northwestern corner of Nebraska. And as we've merged over the years, we, we brought these co-ops together the board of directors would come in, come into the co-op, and then we would sort through and manage those boards as we needed to. We'd have a lot more board members if we brought everyone in you sure. know, into the boardroom. We're at, I believe, 21 right now, 21 board members and a pretty traditional board. Um, 
The CEO is, is not a member of the board, but of course is reports to the board. And you have to be a, a farmer to or a producer to be a member. And, okay. and then, of course, the board is a, an elected role. So uh, they're assigned to geographical regions in our trade areas. And once I'm not sure what the current role is in terms of who's up for reelecting or not, but every, I think it's, a, I don't quote me, I'm not sure what the term is, uh, but there's an election process, nomination election process to go through. Okay. In that sense, it's like a board for a, a private or a public company. Not, a, not much unlike, no. You mentioned in your notes to me that you do have an ERP system. Are there other tech tools you use in accounting and finance that are unique to co-ops? Anything related to co-ops? Yeah, certainly the ERP system we're on is from a company called EFC Systems, and it's called Merchant Ag. And it is designed from the ground up specific for farmer-owned co-ops or agribusiness co-ops, I should say. So what's unique about that is they offer uh, specific packages or ancillary systems for just the agronomy sales and management. We handle prepaids a little differently. It's a very cyclical company, right? Farmers apply fertilizer in in the spring and in the fall, herbicide over the summer, and the rest of the year we might not have a lot of sales. To handle those types of transactions and managing the, the, the prepaids through that cycle is pretty unique. We The ag industry is built upon kind of a rebate program within the herbicides and, and chemistries. And there are components that you know will track uh, the rebates and, and make sure we're following those very closely. The grain system itself, again, not ununique to the grain industry in the U.S., but we, we do have a system that records trucks as they pull into the scale with a you know simple card or member ID, weights are tracked, grades are, are taken and whatnot all into the system and then settled out as grain is priced or put towards contracts. There's a contract management component to that. So it, it, it becomes very complicated, very fast, as you can imagine. And we've got a specific system to help us manage all those accounts. And then the energy is a little different too. We've got several thousand propane customers and several thousand propane tanks. So if you ever seen a propane tank sitting next to a house, that's the business we're in, right? As we own that tank and we would supply propane to it. Of course, producers all run diesel equipment. So we've got tanks out in the country and, and that routing, keeping those tanks full, making sure we've got a product when we need it and where we need it is also built into an ancillary system to to what the general ledger would run off of. So very unique for sure. And we're continuing to add to that. We use Power BI for a lot of reporting. We use lots of other services in terms of a technology stack that builds upon those core systems, including looking at things like the Stampley products uh, and others for expense automation and, and whatnot, which is probably our next set of projects is, is looking at our, our accounts payable processes. What are some of the unique financial challenges that you face considering that your organization's a co-op? We've very fortunate here. My, my predecessor's current CEO has been here a while and they've built a tremendous balance sheet. So from a pure financing perspective, there, there's not a lot of challenges. We're running about a 30% debt to equity. We'll probably be down to 25% towards the end of our fiscal year in August of 2022. 
and just really solid cash flows, uh, well-run balance sheet, maybe a little too conservative at this point. Where we do have challenges though, or where that's really not even a challenge, it's just a lot of extra work is in the grain business, producers like to manage their, their income taxes around that December 31st timeline, right? As a CPA, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And so we'll have a lot of deferred payment grain contracts into January or just a simple request to hold checks until, until January. And so we'll have a run of $300, $400 million worth of checks in those first two or three, um, I'm sorry, 250 to $350 million worth of checks in those first two or three weeks of January. And we'll be... We'll be down to nearly a zero operating line in September, August, September, and then run that up to 400 million bucks in, in literally three, four weeks. That's a, it's a lot of cash management. And we got some really good people on the team that do that really well. It's not a problem getting the cash. It's just a matter of timing and making sure we got the lines open up correctly. Right. That's really interesting. I would not have thought of the tax aspect, but that makes total sense. Yeah. It sounds like you've made a, a lot of investment in technology and you mentioned that you're heading in that direction, trying to automate more. I think you mentioned in the notes, you were looking more into robotic process automation. So that would be one thing. What topics can robotic processing automation cover and how do you evaluate ROI on those investments? Sure. For us, out of the gate, I, I think you know this is probably a little bit of looking at the most common areas, low-hanging fruit, but it's accounts payable. We're running, geez, probably 10,000 invoices a month, right? Between, okay. between employee expense reimbursements and just general payables. And I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to figure out how to incorporate that into our current processes and just streamline things, uh, make them a little more efficient, as well as probably pick up some some other detection in terms of matching and catching out of term invoices or incorrect quantities, et cetera, et cetera, that might otherwise go un, unnoticed if they're immaterial amounts. That's a good point too. Staffing your finance team sounds like a big challenge. I think you mentioned that in the notes as well. How are you handling that and what have you done to try to remedy that? I know it seems like everybody on the planet's having talent issues and hiring issues. So we're a little bit geographically isolated as well. Right? So when you think of the talent pool, we're very fortunate to have the team we do have now built some great people. Finding is continually, as you do continually, finding the, the, the best and brightest people becomes more and more of a challenge the, the tighter the market is. And, and so we have to reach out quite a ways. We have to think ahead as far as we can. We have to do a lot of Strategic talent planning, we're looking at succession plannings, looking at who we have, who can we develop. We spend a lot of time developing internally to build that bench and get people ready to go. And at the end of the day, it's just a matter of finding ways that we can retain the top talent and just find as much as we can and always have a really solid bench. It uh, gets a little costly sometimes, but our CEO often says, I, I love this quote, our number one reason for growing is to provide development opportunities for our people. I'm going to shift to some other topics that you mentioned, and again, heavily into technology. When is it time to hire a CIO or a CTO? What's the sort of the jumping off point where you can't have a third party handle it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I planted that seed, that question. And 
And it's one of those questions that I think I've heard other CFOs talk about. It's not uncommon that IT infrastructure and whatnot is, is reporting up under the CFO. But one of our one of our, our tenets is uh, continual innovation. One of our core values is continual innovation. And that certainly, we've come very dependent on technology, as well as figuring out ways to become unique in the way we go to market, uh, the way we interact with customers. We're a full service co-op. We do a lot of relationship building with our farmer owner customers and technology is becoming a bigger part of that. And as we really take apart our strategy, it becomes very obvious that have we structured ourselves correctly to pay enough attention to information technology, to decision-making with information, et cetera, et cetera. And, And at some point you have to really think through, do you have the right people from the organization at the table at the right time when you're having strategic discussions. And that's my viewpoint. And I, I think you have to weigh those out and and plug into that and figure out, do I have the right people there? And is adding a, a position like a CIO, CTO to the senior leadership team help with that? Or the folks we have managing our IT department, top notch, just unbelievably well skilled and, and able to manage our IT infrastructures, you know, is that distracting for them? Would they rather just be, be, I want to say be told what to do, but have the strategy laid out for them and tell me what we need to get done. And so it's a, it's, it's an organizational change that we're really not struggling with, I wouldn't say, but at the same token, just always good to have viewpoints from others on that topic. So I'd love to, to get your opinion on that or how you would approach it. I've got several friends who are CFOs of companies that might be five to 10 million in sales revenue. They're outsourcing the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. that seems to work up to 10 million in revenue. Then again, I've got, I think the cutoff might be 20 million in revenue and up where it just becomes too expensive to outsource it to a third party. And you feel like you need to have some internal knowledge. You need to have an employee with that knowledge institutionally and not rely on a third party anymore. Mm-hmm. And another related comment is a friend of mine, friend of a friend sold a tech business and all they did was manage IT for companies 10 million and under. And that was the opinion they gave me. They said by 20 million, people are too big and they really need to have their own person internally. <laughs> Because as you probably know from your career, it can get really expensive. <laughs> Third-party outsourcing. And do they also have enough? Um, are they responsive enough? Do they have the infrastructure set up to back up everything to give you access? What about disaster recovery and on? So my answer would be $20 million and up. Gotcha. gotcha. That, my best guess. Another one... Uh, is ESG, which is for the audience's environmental, social, and governance issues. How does that impact your co-op? How does that relate to running your co-op business? Yeah, so certainly agriculture is, you know, a, a big part of the climate change discussion. And we're also a big part of society, right? People love to eat. <laughs> Food's a pretty important thing to most people. And, and as we balance those two and try to understand where we sit and fit in there, I would say, yeah, we, we probably need to strengthen our understanding of the environmental social governance aspects of ESG. Mm-hmm. And we're doing that. We're, we sell about 
Uh, we supply about 20 million bushels a year of food grade corn products, which would be the white corn for the, the corn tortillas, um, a lot of non-GMO type food, food grade, food grade yellow, other products like that. And as, as we deal with those customers, they're asking, do you track your ESG? Do you, do you have, a, have a sustainability report or an ESG report? And the answer is, you know, no, we don't. And we've not been complied to. We've not found it a, a necessity within the markets. But as we grow to understand where things are going within uh, ESG and, and those three categories, it's, I think imparamount, it's paramount that we really understand how we fit in uh, to those ESG scores and how we manage against it. Uh-huh. I wanted to shift back. That's an amazing comment you made about the deferred payments and the dollar amount that you're, this checks you're cutting after right after year end. How does that lead into interest rate risk management, particularly now that the trend seems to be, or the opinion seems to be that interest rates are going to go back up? How do you think about interest rate risk? Mm. Yeah, we certainly are looking at that. And like I say, we will be down to near near zero by September, October of the year uh, of, the, of 2022, just the cyclical nature of we, we buy all this grain and then we ship it out and we empty our bins and then we prepare for the next fall and next harvest. And so our, our seasonal lines, those revolver lines are typically hard to manage a, a flat rate or a fixed rate around. Right. And we're exploring some opportunities there, but and we don't have a lot of long-term debt. We've got some of that hedged off, some swaps in place to, to manage that. And then we're doing some, some project financing on some growth projects that would, would be more of a a non-traditional project finance that allow us to, to fix rates for longer periods. Definitely a, a threat for us, and we're just doing all we can to lock in these reasonable rates. And that's an interesting thing, too. We're basically coming off zero. So as we move up and we, we weigh this threat out, it, it always looks tough to face higher interest rates. But at the same time, if we do get to 2% this year, or 2.5% by 2024, or whatever the projections are, just think of that and compare it to what we've probably seen in the past, Ken, for interest rates. You know, it's, it's not right. maybe as scary as what we think. No, I remember I was in college in the mid to late, in the uh, early mid 80s when interest, remember those 18, 20% interest yeah. rates way yeah, back oh, then. Yeah. I can't, I went, thankfully, I was still in college. I can't imagine trying to be in a business with that kind of interest rate environment. Another point that you mentioned or a an idea was a GIS coordinator, which is geographic information systems and spatial data analysts. And if you could explain how those people work in your business. Yeah. A farmer's life is managing land, right? They're very geographically based. And of course we, as a co-op, one of the things we do, the value proposition that we bring to farmers is owning assets that they otherwise couldn't own themselves. So they come together, they invest together in, in, in core assets around shipping grain to export markets or processing grain into feed or, or being able to receive train loads of fertilizer that then, you know, is, is moved out to them in, in a lot smaller lot sizes. And in amongst that uh, value proposition, we've got a lot of land assets ourselves that we manage with production assets on it or facilities. And as we move forward to down this, this continuum of information technology and data management and, and information about our, our, our assets, both our customers and CVA uh, really don't have a lot of tools to allow us to do that in kind of a, um, an analytical fashion. 
right? We can make, and so what I'm saying is that I want to do more than just make maps. Here's a map of our locations. I want to start looking at the geographical correlation between locations. I want to see what our sales look like across those locations. I want to see competitors. I want to understand what our supply chain looks around our locations. And, and so where are products produced? Where are they coming from? Where are they shipping to? What's going on in the world around train throughputs and efficiency ratios? And how can that inform how we do business on a day-in, day-out basis? And so the thought there and the, and, the, and the question really is, how are companies approaching that? And it, it seems really hard to find those geospatial analysts and who are they? Where are they? Is this something we can tap into virtually? And uh, any thoughts on that would be appreciated. Yeah, I don't know too much about it. I do know that here, I'm, I happen to be in St. Louis and I have uh, people who are part-time farmers, they're not full-time farmers, but part-time farmers say they have property an hour to an hour and a half outside of St. Louis. And I know two people who, before they brought, bought the property, mm-hmm. had that GIS work done. So they knew exactly what the dimensions were, the space, the topography, everything before they bought land. Now they're only buying, say, less than 50 acres, probably, but they did use that. They did use, they use some type of service. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I can't not recognize that we've got a, within our agronomy business unit, a, a group of folks that, that do agronomy spatial data management. So if, if you Google something like ag big data, or a moniker like that, you'll find lots and lots of things on what's known as precision ag. And, you know, precision ag is basically a data set, a spatial data set. Uh-huh. Uh, farmers collect a huge amount of spatial data, including the maps of their fields, harvest data, fertilizer spread data. And, and we do now. And, and the thing is that we've got systems in place that kind of do this through macros, if you will, probably not the best way to describe them. But so if we want to make a variable rate fertilizer map, we've got systems that can do that very easily and send those files out to an applicator and the applicator will go out and and apply one rate on this part of the field and then automatically change the rate to another part of the as he moves across the field, depending on what the needs of that field is. So we've got that down. We've got those systems. I'm thinking of that next level from a, from CVA standpoint, how does, how do we, how do we, how can we use our locational analysis or information about our geography, those things that aren't part of precision ag, but yet are spatially related data sets for CVA's business model. And that's the part that, that we're missing. So that's a good call out. I caught on your website, I was looking at a quote, it said CVA's has strategically positioned itself on both the Union Pacific and Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad lines. And it made me think of the question, Has are you guys having supply chain issues, whether it's bringing raw materials and goods in or shipping your products out? Yeah, we are very fortunate. We've got, we're actually part of a, an LLC that owns the, it's one of the busiest shipping points in the U.S., in Concordia, Kansas. And so we're very familiar with shipping products out on, on rail lines. And we've also got uh, one of the only locations that has multiple, I think we've got three railroads available to us in a location in Iowa uh, that we manage, own and manage a uh, grain facility. And we are very fortunate to do that. It's a huge win for our producer owners when we can arbitrage against the, the different markets where we're shipping those products out to. And it's fascinating to watch how those markets evolve in terms of, of, of trains and capacities and, and where products are going and shipping 
And there's a, if, if you put yourself in the shoes of an Asian buyer or an overseas buyer, no matter where they might be, how do they approach the U.S., right? And you think about all the different trains and the railroads in the U.S., they're really, it, it makes it a lot simpler when there's less of them, even though that might seem like an anti-competitive perspective, but in actuality, it makes it a really clean, easy way to, to move for move grain and as well products in, right? Fertilizer comes in on those same rails uh, that we're a lot of times moving product out on. And uh, the threat, the concerns we have are typically related to when we've got a market situation and rail freight demand is very high. If um, a bunch of buyers come in and decide they want to buy a whole bunch of, of grain at one time, overseas buyers, we'll get, um, we'll get a little bit bottlenecked in certain areas of the U.S. And that'll, those will have reper, repercussions all the way back through the supply chain. Late train, we will, we'll have uh, anywhere from you know, 15 to 20 100-car shuttle trains on our calendar per month. That's about 440,000 bushels in one shuttle train. And when we stack the deck, we've got to be able to move product and you throw one monkey wrench in there and that, that has a pretty serious uh, implications for us. And that's probably the biggest threat to the whole railroad issue uh, right now. But generally, everybody's used to it. It's, it's very hard to you know, build a, uh, huge temples for two or three meetings a year or two or three events a year. You have to take it with what you can and get the reasonable rates you can without having perfect trains every minute that you need it. Uh, I had just a few more questions. Uh, I also noticed on the website, you had the, uh, for energy and some of the other products, the March 22 contracts out there were in February. Are your farmers, this is a very broad question, are your farmers doing things, is there any use of derivatives to hedge commodity prices at the farmer level, or is that something just the co-op does as a service for the farmer? Pretty broad answer <laughs> again would be would be that uh, I don't know um, if we have uh, I think on the high end maybe fifty percent of of our grain producers will will put into some kind of place uh, put into place some kind of, of marketing program that might involve derivatives or um, hedges or something on their production that's probably a little on the high side even I don't know for sure if anybody has that direct answer. Sometimes we get involved with those programs and we just know about them. Other times we don't, and, and they just want a, a place to ship their grain. And if we can work around their marketing program, then we'll get their business. Pretty broad there. Uh, there's a lot of people in the industry selling a lot of different marketing products and consulting and programs to, to producers. We've got some you know, specialty type contracts that we can use to help them to plug into their marketing programs. But otherwise than that, we don't, we don't uh, go out and offer any types of trading uh, programs okay. right, for them. We're not licensed to do that. Got it. Okay. The, the March 22nd contract just caught my eye when I looked at the website. This has been great, Fred. I'll wrap it up with one more question. If you had one piece of advice to modern finance listeners, what would it be, broadly speaking, as a CFO? You know, I would say you got to keep an eye on the horizon with your business leads. Get to know who knows your business really well and make sure that you've got the same vision, you've got the same insight to the horizon, what they think is coming at you. It's, it's, it's paramount to be prepared for whatever that is, whether that's financing on a project or 
big cash needs on an, on some form of business opportunity that comes up, like the grain programs that, that we go through every year. That one happens every year, so we know about it, but you never know when a program like that could crop up. And of course, growth. We historically have, have doubled in size. We're up to about $2.2 billion this most previous year. We've typically doubled in size every five years. And it's been a little bit stagnant coming out of the, the, the COVID pandemic in terms of, of growth opportunities. So we're due for you know, some potential growth. And you never know for sure when that's going to happen. And you've got to have your teams prepared to do that. And if you're organic growth, or a lot of times we'll grow with mergers and acquisitions, two major different things, and be prepared with all your due diligence checklists and your integration checklists and all those things. Yeah keep finance ahead of the change as much as possible. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Fred, I want to thank you for joining us today. And for our audience, thank everyone for joining us on Leaders of Modern Finance. So thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Oh, you are very welcome. I enjoyed it. And maybe someday we'll get to chat again. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.